you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Over the next three weeks, we will be diving into a mini-series on our discipleship strategy. Pastor Raiden will be sharing how we can be a part of the mission of God in our average, everyday lives. If you were looking for the next steps to take in your faith, this series is a good place to start. What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attendant, Ziba, and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. God's word for God's people. Thank you very much, Scott. Once again, just the most velvety, luxurious voice that we have in our fellowship. So I was like, man, we might not want to schedule you again on Leap Forward Sunday because people were probably like, hmm, yes, Mephibosheth, Ziba. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, I'd probably give one of my fingers. I don't think I'd give a whole hand or an arm or anything, but probably one of my fingers I'd let go of. Not a thumb, but one of the fingers to have a voice like that. I did, I was not, that's not, yeah, I just, I don't have that. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> so you're stuck with this. Uh, what are we going to do? We just work with what we got, you know what I mean? We just work with what we got. I, I'm a huge fan of the movie Tombstone. Any Tombstone fans out there? Yeah, a few of you guys really love Tombstone. Some of you are like, is it about uh, pizzas? If you've thought that, you're probably in college or recently out of college or uh, have the taste that never developed past college. Like you're thinking, what do you want on a tombstone? Pepperoni and mushrooms. You know, like the, remember the commercials? Uh, there's this, there's, there's about a thousand great moments in the movie and just full disclosure, it's a Western and people get shot and stuff. So, you know, keep that in mind. It's not, I'm not recommending you watch it or anything like that. Actually I am, unless you're not of age to watch that kind of a movie. Uh, but I really like it. There's a really powerful moment in it for me when, uh, Doc Holliday is sick, and he's and you're, some of you are like, spoiler alert, it came out in the 90s, okay? So I don't care if you haven't seen it, that's kind of on you. But Doc Holliday, is, you know, he's got this lung disease. He's coming out of, uh, you know, recovery and care to go and ride with his friend, like to just stand by his friend in battle. And, and one of the other guys that's part of the posse, part of the crew is like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And, and Doc Holliday says, Wyatt Earp is my friend. And the guy says, he's, uh, you know, like the pastoral version. He says, well, I got a lot of friends. And Doc Holliday looks at him and says, well, I don't. I, I, it's a story to me. It's a story about friendship. 
that's, I think, why it really resonates with me. Also, there's some really cool gunfights, which also <laughs> sort of resonates with me too. You know, it's, it's awesome, awesome cowboy stuff. Um, but it's a story about friendship, and uh, that's what today's story is about. Mephibosheth is a story about friendship. It's a story about a particular friendship between David and Jonathan. And for the story of David and Jonathan, we have to kind of back up a little bit, which we're gonna do in just a second. But I just, I want you to know going in that this is a story about a guy who loved his friend and said, I'm gonna take care of your family as much as it depends upon, as much as I can. If you live, I know you're gonna take care of my family. If I live, I hope you know I'm gonna take care of your family and that's just how it's going to be. That's just what is going to happen. And then David gets the benefit and the blessing of being able to carry out that. He gets to carry out that promise. He gets to fulfill that promise and it's so good. And I wanna say, it's, it's awesome to me to look around this room and to go, I know if something happened to me, like if something happened to me, something tragic happened to me and I was taken from this life and taken from my family, I don't have any doubt I have no doubt that there are people in this room and people who are not in this room who would move heaven and earth to help my family. That's, it's such a good feeling to be cared for like that, to be loved like that, and, and to see that the love for someone else can provide benefits and blessings for other people, like people that maybe you might not even know yet, which is the story that we see here. We're finishing off our... Uh, tables series, like this, our Red Hill strategy for how we're gonna make disciples. The first one's my table, and I want everybody to understand, every single person who's a follower of Jesus, you have a sphere of gospel responsibility. You, follower of Jesus, you have people that you are supposed to be impacting with the gospel. That doesn't mean necessarily it doesn't not mean this, but it doesn't mean stuffing your pockets full of gospel tracts and leaving them in the bathrooms for you know, unsuspecting bathroom goers to stumble upon them, read them, and give their lives to Jesus while they're doing their business in there. That doesn't mean that necessarily. Maybe that's what the Holy Spirit tells you to do, and if so, you better do it. Because I'm sure somebody somewhere has gotten saved in a bathroom stall because somebody left a track. But I think it means particularly, rather than like, farming out the responsibility that we have with the gospel, we're supposed to live as gospel people. Live as people who have been loved by Jesus and because of that, love other people around us. Sharing with them our own story about what God did in our lives. You don't have to be a master expert, like Bible ninja, being able to answer any and every question. You just need to be able to say, I was blind and now I see. I was lost, Jesus, he saved me, he found me, he rescued me from myself and from my sin. Is that always going to make someone go, well, I want what you have? No, it isn't. But you're not responsible for the results. You're not responsible for the outcomes. The apostle Paul said, I, I plowed, I planted, somebody else watered, but God is the one who gives the growth. You and I can't make a dead person come back to life and we don't have the authority or the responsibility to absolve people, to forgive people of their sins. Nothing that you do can send a person to hell or get them into heaven. But you and I have a responsibility to share with others what God has done for us. It's just that simple. To live as people who've been changed. To live differently than the world around us. We also, the second table, is, is our table. Collectively, we have a mission together. 
We're supposed to be on mission together. That's what a local church is. I forgot to clip this to my collar, and it's going to drive me crazy. So just, you know, bear with me. This is, there we go, done. You barely, some of you didn't even notice. You were looking at your purse or Bible or something. Our table, we're better. We're better when we win together. Because some of you heard I have gospel responsibilities and you immediately thought it all depends upon me and I'm an introvert and I don't like people and I don't know how to share my faith and I don't want to tell other people about Jesus. I could leave a track in a bathroom maybe, but I'd have to be in there by myself and I don't want anybody to know that I'm the one who left it because I don't want them to talk to me. But still, you have people that love you and know you who would come over if you invited them to a meal, who would come over if you said, hey, we're going to like play cornhole, we're gonna throw some bags around, or I've got a project and I could use your help, an extra set of hands. You have people that don't know Jesus but do know you. And if you don't feel competent or comfortable with the idea of leading someone to faith in Jesus, can I tell you, that's part of the beauty, part of, just part of the beauty of belonging to a local church, is that you can say, let's do this thing together. Let's love this person together. Let's care about this person together. Let's share the gospel with this person together because some of us are really good at making food and some of us are really good at eating food and some of us are really good at making people feel comfortable and some of us are really good at making people feel uncomfortable and we need both of those things. We need all of the people. All of us together are knitted together and form a local body, a local outpost of the kingdom of heaven, a local expression of what Jesus Christ looks like and what it looks like when he loves somebody. That's us together. That's us together. And this one today, this is the final piece of our table strategy, the third table, which we sometimes might call the Lord's table or his table, or today we're going to call it the king's table. And we're going to see how this story is like our story. And I want you to know, you have to, first of all, first you have to hear the story, which we just heard, thanks to Scott. Then you have to find your place in the story. And then after you find your place in the story, you have to come to the table. And then after you come to the table, you know what you have to do? You just have to stay at the table. <laughs> That's all you have to do. You just have to, you have to enjoy the table. That's what it's all about. We become, and then we do. We don't do to become, and that'll make more sense here in just a minute. So, quick overview of the life of Mephibosheth, the life and times of Mephibosheth. So, if you flip backwards to 1 Samuel chapter 20, you'll see that there's a covenant that's going to be made between David and Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we'll start in verse, uh, we'll start in verse 11, I think. Uh, but the, the background here is that David has been trying to help Saul, who's the king, and Saul's losing his mind. He's being afflicted, and he's basically a terrible person, and David's playing the harp for him. It's the only thing that calms him down, but in the same way that it calms him down, it drives him crazy because he sees God's favor on David's life and not on his own life, and so he does what a normal person does and starts literally throwing spears at David, trying to murder him, and David's like, well, I'm gonna go for now. That, that's like a snooze button, you know what I mean? Some of you who are married are like, yeah, I woke my wife up the other day or I woke my husband up the other day. I know what David's going through, you know what I mean? Like, you, you sleep a little longer. You're not ready yet. You, the, you, the day's not ready for you and you're not ready for the day. So David's in, he's playing the harp. Saul starts chucking spears at his head. David goes to Jonathan, his best friend. Jonathan, who's the prince, who is uh, the order of succession, this supposed to be the next king of Israel. And David's like, your dad hates me and he's trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no way, no chance. I'm giving you the very brief background. Basically, Jonathan goes to his dad and is like, hey, what do you think about David being gone, huh? And uh, Saul lets him know what he thinks. Jonathan comes out to the field as prearranged and has a meeting with David. This would be the last time 
that these two friends ever talk, the last time that they get to have a face-to-face encounter. They probably didn't know that. They probably didn't know this is going to be the last time that they're going to talk. I, like all of a sudden I'm thinking of Forrest Gump when he's like, you know, if I had known that was going to be the last time I'd talk to him, I probably said something different. I think David and Jonathan, if they could look back and say, this is the last time you're going to see each other. Is there anything else that you need to say? They'd say, no, no, we covered it. We covered it. It's probably a lesson in there, but that's a different sermon for a different day. It says in verse 11 that Jonathan, he answered David, come on, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. By the Lord God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he's favorable toward you, I will, not, uh, will I not send for you and tell you if my father intends to bring evil on you, may God punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So that is the covenant that's made. Well, some years later, Saul and Jonathan would die in battle. Following that, David is crowned the king. And we see, well, before that, I guess, before all that happened, Saul's son Jonathan says in 2 Samuel 4, Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nanny picked him up and fled, but as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So five-year-old kid, Mephibosheth, Saul and Jonathan die. His nanny picks him up to flee. If you've seen any movie with knights in it or kings in it, when one king is gone, everybody in the king's household has to run. They got to get out of there because they want to have clear paths of authority, like absolutely clear lines of authority as to who the king is, who the next king will be. They don't want any kind of tension and turmoil. So the nanny picks up Mephibosheth, takes off running with him. He falls and something tragic happens to his feet. He's lame in both of his feet. And then we get to 2 Samuel 8. In verse 15 it says, David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. David's now the king over everything that he can see, everything that is Israel, he's part of it. So... House of Saul is done, it's fallen. The house of David has arisen and has been installed. David now is administering justice and righteousness for all of his people. He's the king over all of Israel. And we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And as soon as David has authority over all the people of Israel, the first instinct he has is this. He says, it says, David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to? For Jonathan's sake. First of all, I think it's amazing that he doesn't just say, Is there anybody left from the family of Jonathan that I can show kindness to? But is there anybody left from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to? There's a lot of power in holding on to bitterness, there's a lot of joy in holding on to forgiveness. Both of them will take you to a place. Anybody left, he says, from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. 
They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, There is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. The intent was to show kindness to anyone connected to Jonathan. To show kindness to anyone connected to Jonathan. That is the intent. David wants to keep his covenant. His covenant still holds, and the descendants of Jonathan will be the beneficiaries of the covenant. This is the beauty of a covenant. You make promises, and somebody else gets the benefits. I don't know if you know this or not, but a wedding is actually the creation of a covenant. You're making a covenant when you get married. In fact, the Hebrew word covenant means it's berit, and it means to cut. And when you look at a wedding ceremony, what you see is the outline of what a covenant actually looks like. You'll remember when God makes his covenant with Abram in the Old Testament, he says, I want you to cut these animals in half and separate them. And then when he does that, God himself walks through the pieces, like a light passes through those pieces. God moving through those pieces was God's way of saying, you guys have probably said something like, cross my heart and hope to die. When you're like, no, I'm serious, I mean it, I will do it, cross my heart and hope to die. That's a form of a covenant. What's being said in a covenant is, may this be done to me. Remember what Jonathan said? May this be done to me and more so also if I don't fulfill what I have promised. When you look at a wedding ceremony, there's bride side and groom side, right? There's two halves, two separated pieces. In a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom goes out and gets his bride and brings her through the two center pieces, like brings her down the center aisle, symbolizing that a covenant is being made. And when you make that wedding covenant, by the way, you're making that covenant with God, not with your spouse. Your spouse is gonna change. I don't know if you know this or not, but your spouse is gonna change. They're gonna be different. Now, here's the thing. Is the stuff that drives you crazy? That's probably never gonna change. You know what I mean? Like micro changes, you know what I'm saying? Like micro growth I'm, I'm never going to be good at details. I'm just never going to do it. And, and if my wife thinks I'm going to marry him and that's going to fix that, she's wrong, right? She's just wrong. The covenant that she made, she made with God. I'm making a covenant with you, God, that I will do the following things. It's not dependent on me, but I get all the benefits. I make a covenant with God. I'm going to do all of these things. It's not dependent upon the actions of Sarah. She's just the beneficiary. She's the recipient of all the good things. By the way, this is why, this is why God is the one who defines what a marriage is. Because the marriage covenant isn't between two people, it's between people and God. So we have to honor what he wants and what he says. That's probably another sermon for another time too, but I wanted to say it. David wants to keep his covenant. That's the bottom line. He wants to keep his covenant. He wants to show kindness. He wants to do what he promised to do. He's in a position now where he has the authority. He has the resources. He has the means to do it. He's no longer just running for his life, trying to stay alive, trying to not be killed by Saul and his army. I can't imagine what that must have felt like. And as soon as he gets a breath, he says, who's left that I can love? Who's left that I can extend kindness to? Who is there? Is there anybody that's left? And Ziba shows up and says, yeah, there is one guy, Jonathan's son, injured in both feet. 
In verse 4, the king asked him, where is he? And Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodibar, or Lodabar, or I don't know how to say it in Hebrew, so however you want to pronounce it's fine with me, at the house of Machir, son of Amiel. So David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So who do we have in the story so far? We have David, we have Ziba, the servant. We have this guy, Mephibosheth. By the way, Mephibosheth, the name means shame destroyer. <laughs> that's like, I'm like, man, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Shame destroyer. And the almighty powerful shame destroyer. Where do we find him? We find him lame in both feet. It's going to be tough to be a great warrior without feet. And we find him in a place called Lodibar. And Lodibar, by the way, means the land of no pasture. Can you imagine being Mephibosheth? You're a five-year-old kid. Your grandpa is the king. Your dad is the prince. Everything is perfect until both of them die in the same battle on the same day, and then all of a sudden, your nanny picks you up, rushes you out. Not only is your life changed forever because of the death of your whole family, but also now you're lame in both feet. And where do you end up? You end up in a land of no pasture. You, li- you end up in a barren, desolate wasteland. Probably going, I guess God's forgotten about me. This is what happens to us is the hard times feel eternal and definitional. We lose perspective of the scope of eternity and the power of the true king of kings. Low Debar, a place of no pasture, a man with no feet, with no family, with no hope, no means of providing an income, and all he's trying to do is just not be noticed or known. He's just trying to disappear into the background. Why? Because that's the only way he can stay alive. His whole focus, his whole focus is just, how do I stay alive? How do I stay hidden? How do I stay in the shadows? How do I stay out of the field of view of the king? Well, verse six, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell down, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth uh, Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you take interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You... Your sons and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, and Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my lord the king commands. I just really like, they bring Mephibosheth in, and the first thing David says is, don't be afraid. It sounds like somebody else that I know. You know what I'm saying? Somebody else in the Bible that I know. It sounds like every angel, every representative of God, Jesus himself, God himself, when they show up, don't be afraid. And I wanted to say, like, fear is a normal response when you're in the presence of a king who has the power over life and death. That's like a super normal thing. Before Mephibosheth can even say, I'm afraid, David is saying, don't be afraid. And here's why you don't need to be afraid. 
I intend to show you kindness. I think one of the things that keeps people from God more than anything else is a misunderstanding about what it means to come to his table, what it means to come to his house, what it means to come into his presence. The number of people that I know that I have with my own ears heard say something like, I can never go in there, talking about a building. I, I, like, I have to keep God at a safe distance from me. Because if I get close to him, I know what's going to happen. They fundamentally misunderstand God's disposition towards them. And I think it's because many of us fundamentally God, uh, misunderstand God's disposition towards us. That when you walk into the presence of the king humbly, when you walk into the presence of God humbly, the first thing he's going to say to you is, don't be afraid. Why? I intend to show you kindness. I intend to show you kindness, David says. I intend to show you kindness. Why? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. The act of showing kindness has a catalyst. It's the covenant that David made. David's not following tradition. He's not following best practices. He's not following culture. And he's certainly not following his heart, though he'll do that a couple of chapters from now when he sees Bathsheba. He's gonna follow his heart then. Don't follow your heart. Bible says your heart is deceptive, deceitful, and wicked, surpassing all other things. Don't follow your heart. Don't trust your feelings. Feel your feelings, absolutely. Feelings make a really good thermometer. They make a really bad navigator. They make an even worse Uber driver. Your feelings will take you to terrible places. Feel your feelings. Let your feelings determine the temperature of the room that you're in, sure. But then you make decisions. Don't give the wheel to your feelings. David's keeping covenant. He's keeping covenant. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's doing the right thing. He's doing the just thing. He's doing the good thing. He's doing the honorable thing. He's doing the thing that's supposed to be done. The world might say what he should do is kill him, and that way the bloodline stays clean, the authority line stays clean, the line of succession stays clean and clear, uh, there's no problems there whatsoever if you just kill him. But David says, I made a covenant, so the right thing to do is to show kindness. That's the right thing to do to a person who deserves death, to a person who does not deserve respect, to a person who can offer nothing to me, who can add no value to my kingdom, to a person who's crippled and lame, the son of a rebel king, the son of a dividing faction, a potential rival to my throne, someone who is a threat to me. David says the right thing to do is to bring him to my table and show him kindness. So, it says... Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth, it's like, I feel like Sally sells seashells by the seashore. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. An enemy marked for death becomes a member of the royal family. When you sit at the king's table, nobody notices your feet anymore. You know what I mean? Nobody was talking about Mephibosheth's feet anymore. Nobody was saying, do you know Mephibosheth? Yeah, he's the guy with the bad feet, right? No, he's the guy who sits at the king's table. 
Yeah, he's got bad feet, but you're probably not gonna want to mention that because David really likes him and might kill you. So let's not talk about his feet too much. What do we know about him? We know he sits at the king's table. Nobody notices your feet, but you better believe that word spread. I think there's a lot of powerful in a story like this, a lot of power in a story like this. You have an all-powerful king who has the right to execute someone who's from the line of another king comes into his presence. The response of that king is, I made a covenant, and based on that covenant, I'm gonna show you kindness. I'm gonna show you kindness. I know who you are. I know what you deserve. I know what's supposed to happen, but I'm following a higher law. I'm going to show you kindness. And what's the response of Mephibosheth? He just eats at the table like one of the king's sons. Guys, I think probably somebody here has forgotten the truth that the king intends to show you kindness. He intends to show you kindness. It can't be said enough times because what shame does to us, it's brutal. What shame does to us is it says, I have to hide myself. I'm embarrassed. I have to hide myself. I'm ashamed. I, like I, I feel the weight of this thing that I've done, these things that I'm doing, this stuff that's in my past, this stuff that's in my present. I feel it, and so I want to keep the king at a safe distance. But the beauty of our king, the beauty of this table, is that enemies are made friends. More than friends, enemies are made the beneficiaries. I, I really love, you know, we've got a couple of families in our church that have adopted. You know, the Moors back there with Phoebe and the Sidwells up here with Marcus. And I gotta tell you, I think that um, I, I've not adopted, I wasn't adopted myself, my family didn't adopt, but I, I think it's probably pretty offensive to say to a family who has adopted, you know, that's not really your son, that's not really your daughter. And I, I'm imagining, because I haven't adopted, I'm imagining that all the rights and privileges of being a son or a daughter are extended to those who are adopted into the family. It's not a different will because there was a different bloodline. It's the same will. You're brought into the family. You're brought in. Why are you brought in? Because we intend to show you kindness and make you part of this thing. But somehow it gets twisted inside of our hearts and our heads when we start thinking about ourselves and God's response to us because we think he's like us. That's what we do. We think he's like us because you know what happens to us. Somebody does something, whether it's one of our kids or a friend or a family member or a neighbor or whatever, they do something and they go, hey, I'm sorry that I did that. And we go, oh, that's okay. I forgive you. Everything's good. Okay, thanks. And then they do that thing again. We're like, it's, don't sweat it. It's fine. I forgive you. And then they do it again. Uh, all right. Yeah, maybe I'll just move. You know, like it's okay, but I got to create a little distance between us. And then they do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And we're like, are you ever going to change? 
Are you ever going to grow? Are you ever going to stop disappointing me? Are you ever going to stop hurting me? Are you ever going to stop frustrating me? Like, I'm, I'm sick of it. I mean, all of us have probably said, all of us over the age of about 10 have probably said, enough. It's enough apologies. It's enough repentance. It's enough I'm sorry's. Just do better. Right? We've all probably gotten to that point with someone. And so what we do is we take what we're like and we put that onto the image of our king. And we go, that must be what God is like. I mean, his patience is longer than ours, you know, so he puts up with it longer. But you and I know that we have what the Bible calls besetting sins. We have ongoing struggles and we go, well, if I keep coming back to him with this same thing, if I keep going to him with the same problems, then he's going to get sick of me. So I have to keep him at the same distance. And you forget that a covenant was made with the body and blood of Jesus as the payment. A covenant was made. And the guarantee for us, the guarantee for us is forgiveness. I really like what 1 John says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's faithful to do it. You know what that means? You can count on him to do it every time. But not only is he faithful to do it, he's just to do it. It's justice. Let it settle in on you. When you sin and then you confess the sin, the only justice is forgiveness. That's crazy, isn't it? That's crazy. How can that possibly be so? It's so because it depends not a single bit, not a drop, not an iota upon you. You're the beneficiary of it. God is always gonna be faithful to forgive. He's always just. In other words, the very essence of his character, the very essence of his identity, who he exactly is requires him to look at confessing sinners and say, forgiveness is my only option. You didn't put God over a barrel. God put himself in this position that he would say, I'm so oriented towards confessing sinners that no matter what's going on, no matter how terrible it's been, no matter what has happened, anyone who confesses, anyone who agrees with me about sin, I'm faithful and I'm just and I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you. It's the right thing to do. Some of us just have contented ourselves with living in low D bar. This place with no pasture that has nothing to offer, no refreshment, no rest, no respite. It's a place of anxiety and fear and shame. It's a place of hiding and hopelessness. But the calls come out. You're wanted at the king's table. You, specifically, you are wanted at the king's table. You have been invited to the king's table. And you probably, if you're honest, I hope you're like Mephibosheth. When he says, what is your servant that you take interest in a dead dog like me? Why would God want somebody like me? Why would God want somebody like you? Why would David be at all interested in Mephibosheth? 
He's interested because he loves Jonathan and he made a covenant. He made a covenant and the covenant said, I'm gonna extend every good thing I have to your family forever. There's been a covenant made. The recipients of the blessing are those who put their faith in Jesus. That's what the king's table is about. It's not about coming to a worship gathering. This third table in our strategy is really the only table in our strategy. Because when we're bringing people to our table, the point is not that they would think that we're great or good host or have a good pot roast. The point is that we'd be able to bring them to Jesus, that we'd be able to see, that they'd be able to see that by sitting at our table, sitting with us, just knowing us, that we've been changed somehow. That our shame has been removed. That yeah, we have lame feet, but that's not what's important about us. That when people come to our table together, it's not so they can just see that Red Hill is a great church full of good people. (laughs) I mean, I think we're a great church, but I don't think we're full of good people. If that's the hope, we're all in a lot of trouble. I think you're wonderful people, but I don't want us to have to wear the moniker of good. How about gospel people? I'll take that one. A great church full of gospel people when we get together with people that don't know the Lord, I don't want them to say just, I don't want them to just say, those are really wonderful people. I want there to be something that's spiritual about it, something redemptive about it. I want them always pointed, and I want myself always pointed first to the king's table. I think Mephibosheth was known only and always as the son of Jonathan until he got to David's table. And then I think he was known as a guy who sat at David's table. Always at David's table. Forever at David's table. Later on, guys, David has to flee the city, has to abandon his kingdom. When he comes back, Ziba makes all these accusations about Mephibosheth, his lack of love for David. But when Mephibosheth shows up, it's clear that he's been in mourning since the day that David left. You know what David does? Now that I have a table again, you get to sit here with me. (laughs) Like you're, You're back at the table. You're with me. You're with me. Let it be known to you, follower of Jesus. God's intent is to show you kindness. That doesn't mean everything in your life goes smoothly. Au contraire, mon frere. I don't know what that phrase means, but I think it means to the contrary, my friend. I don't speak any French at all. Well, not any that I'm gonna say up here anyway. We're gospel people, you know what I'm saying? We're gospel people. We don't have to be good because we're gospel people. Jesus is good. Your life doesn't get easier. It doesn't get more simple. It gets purpose. It gets family. And it gets hope. Because this life is not all that there is. It's not all that there is. I don't know, I was looking for the right ways to say it that would be flowery and beautiful and poetic and powerful. I can't find a better way of saying it than this. God intends to show you kindness by bringing you to his table and making you his daughter or his son. And it doesn't have anything to do with you, Mephibosheth. Doesn't matter if you've been in a land of no pasture. Doesn't matter if you can't offer something good to him. You have nothing to bring the king. In fact, that's kind of the point. Because it shows you what kind of king he is. He wants to show you kindness. 
And the reason that it's good news is because it's not just for you. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no criteria for you to meet. Anybody and everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, what happens after that? Everything. What's it look like? It's like saying, what's marriage like? What's it like to be a dad or a mom? Or tell me about your best friend and that friendship. It's the kind of thing that has to be experienced. So I want to move into our time of response, and I want to give you some specific things to think through, to consider. First one's this. As you think about that story of Mephibosheth, I want you to find yourself in the story. Where are you at in the story? Are you in low D bar? Are you, are you like in hiding, living in shame, afraid, wondering what's gonna happen? Or have you been like invited to the table? Come to the table and then like backed away from the table? What, like where are you in that story? Because the invitation's gone out for you. You are invited to the table. You can come to the table. Some of you need to come to the table this morning for the first time. You need to accept that invitation and say, I want to be a part of that family. You don't need to know all the implications and details to know you want to be part of that family. That's all you have to start with. I want to be part of that family. In fact, there's not a magical incantation you say to get into that family. Really what you say is this. God, I'm not in your family, and I want to be in your family. Like, I, I just want to be in that family. Whatever it is that you do to people to bring them into your family, do it for me. Do it in me. It's an understanding that I can't please God. Jesus created a new covenant. Now, God can be pleased with me. Putting my faith in Jesus. Find yourself in the story. Come to the table. And then let's remember this, guys. Everything that we do as a church, everything that we do, we do it first and foremost because we are loved and accepted. It flows from that. There's not something that you're gonna do. There's not something that I'm gonna do. It's not like I, if I get up here and preach the best sermon in the world that God's like, now you get your attaboy. It's not like I preach a, a dog of a sermon and get down off the stage and God is like, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. It's not how it works. The things that I do, I get to do with joy because I'm a beloved son and sonship and daughterhood or daughtership, whatever, whatever. that's not based on any kind of performance. Marcus and Phoebe don't have to be something to be a part of that family. They're already part of the family. When you're brought into the family of God, you don't have to do something. So God will go, okay, now I really like you. Now I'm, I'm really proud of you. Now I trust you. It's not how it works. 
everything we do, we do from a position of already being loved and accepted. Meaning this, we're free to try. It's okay to try. It's okay to go out there and give it your best shot and crash it straight into the wall. <laughs> like to just go, man, I try to share the gospel with my neighbor and I think that he might have asked a Martian into his shoulder. Like, I don't know what happened. Somewhere along the line, everything went off track, and now they're, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen next. Well, welcome to the party, pal. We got T-shirts. He can do an awful lot with your awful little. You don't have to do in order to be. You already are, which sets you free. You don't have to perform for him. You're loved and you're accepted. We take the Lord's Supper during this time. I want to remind you of what Jesus said when he shared this last meal with his disciples. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And in the same manner, he took the cup. This is the second cup, not the cup that represented the old covenant, but a second cup. And he said, this, taking the wine, he said, this represents my blood. It's being poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He's made everything new. He's invited you to his table. I guess Mephibosheth maybe could have stayed in Lodabar. I don't really know. And the point is he didn't. And you don't have to either. You don't need to know everything. You don't have to have every answer to every question. You don't even have to know all the questions. You just need to listen carefully to that still small voice inside of you that's saying you're not part of it but you can be. Or to that voice that's inside of you saying, why did you get up from the table? Come back. I intend to show you kindness. That's the beauty of our King's table. When you're ready, you take the Lord's Supper. I'll be in the back for anybody who wants to pray or talk with me. And I wanna encourage you, if you have a prayer request or a decision that you wanna make that you'd like our pastors to know about, please grab a connection card and let us know. You can drop it in the box along with your offering if you want to. When you're ready, you take the supper. Listen to Jesus. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.